You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody. So you've got a full house tonight. It's great. Thanks for coming along. Um, I'm here from Accenture for Doc, where I work at the Human Insights Lab team. I'm here representing Claire Carroll, who's the director of the Human Insights Lab. Um, I am also an alumni of Science Gallery here at Trinity, so uh, it's great to be coming back so close uh, to my former home. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. So I'm going to do the intro, and then I'm going to pass across to Danielle, and then we're going to have a Q&A at the end with Syed. Um, firstly, to do a bit of an intro and a bit of context. So on behalf of Jane Olmeyer, uh, Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and Accenture Doc, I want to welcome you all here to Trinity College uh, for the latest talk in what it means to be human. For those of you joining us here and online for the first time, what does it mean to be human in the 21st century is a cross-disciplinary lecture series launched in December 2018 as a collaboration between Accenture's Human Insights Lab and the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. It's also great, I should say, to be here in the new business school, so uh, thanks for accommodating the event. This new series seeks to reflect on how we understand ourselves in the world and our place within it by bringing together academic and creative voices at Trinity to discuss the human experience of today and its future in the face of accelerated change brought, brought about by artificial intelligence and technology. This is our penultimate uh, talk in the series. Uh, today we've looked at our journey from existence to extinction, uh, the era of the mind, material culture, and our relationship with technology and the devices that know us best. <coughs> so, tonight's highly anticipated talk will be delivered by physicist Danielle Bassett. Combining a strong background in physics with training and collaborations in neuroscience, Professor Bassett adapts mathematical approaches associated with the study of complex networks such as computer or social networks to analyze interactions amongst neurons in different regions of the brain. Danielle received a BS from Pennsylvania State University and a certificate of postgraduate study and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. She was a postdoctoral associate and a SAGE junior research fellow at the University of California in Santa Barbara uh, before joining the faculty, faculty of the University of Pennsylvania. By the age of 32, Professor Bassett uh, had been awarded the MacArthur Fellowship, prestigious acknowledgement of her exceptional achievement and creativity in her work on brain connectivity. A recent Science Magazine article commented that Bassett routinely disregards disciplinary boundaries and follows her curiosity with abandon. In fact, her email signature lists no less than five departments that she's affiliated with in her position as J. Peter Skirkinich professor, professor with the U University of Pennsylvania. These include the Department of Bioengineering, the Department of Physics and Astronomy, the Department of Electrical Systems and Engineering, uh, the Department of Neurology, and the Department of Psychiatry. Professor Bassett will cross disciplinary boundaries again tonight uh, when she talks to us about the curious human, integrating historical, philosophical, and psychological perspectives with techniques and a, from applied mathematics and statistical physics. So uh, before we get going, just a reminder, um, uh, before we welcome Professor Bassett to speak, I would like to remind you that we'll be on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag HubMatters, and hashtag being human and tagging at TLRHub. We're also live streaming tonight's discussion and it will also be podcast on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. We're delighted that following Professor Bassett's talk, uh, Syed Ghazi from the DOC at Accenture, uh, with an interest in complex systems, uh, will curate the follow-up discussion with questions from the audience. Uh, so please welcome me in joining, uh, in, please join me in welcoming Daniel Bassett. Thank you.
Thank you very much for the very kind introduction. Um, I was told that I should turn the lights down. Um, if you, but it doesn't look like oh, light. Okay. Um, wonderful. So uh, today, the topic of my talk is the curious human. Can everybody hear me in the back if I stand close enough? Okay. Not really. Okay. I have I have quite a small voice. All right. I'll try this. Is that better? At the back, a little bit better. Yeah. I'll try to speak up. Okay. Um, so I wanted to actually start with. Um, the human brain, um, and which is the topic of much of the work that I focus on uh, in my daily life. And I'm really fascinated by this extremely intricate, beautiful pattern of interconnections that allows for information to pass from one side of the brain to another side of the brain, or from one um, functional portion of the brain to another functional portion of the brain. And what I'm most captivated by um, in this system is its ability to adapt, to change, and to learn, which I think makes us, as humans, much of what we actually are. Um, and in fact, a lot of the work in my lab is currently focused on um, understanding this, uh, the formal experiments that can be done to probe how humans learn and how we can teach them new information. So for example, in a recent study, this Tang et al. in uh, 2019, we we're teaching individuals about novel shapes and what the value of those novel shapes are. And so we're trying to push the boundary of understanding how humans can learn new uh, information with these fairly simple stylized uh, laboratory experiments. And I don't want to belittle that work at all, but I also am kept up at night with the question of whether these highly stylized experiments really have anything to do with how humans really behave and learn. And so when I'm sort of sitting, you know, at, at, at alone at night thinking, I want to know, you know, what is learning? Is learning what we're doing when we are teaching somebody inside of the scanner, or is learning something really quite different? Um, and so, uh, in preparation for this lecture, I pulled out my 1939 Oxford English Dictionary and I looked up learn. And so, in the OED, um, it is to get knowledge of subject or a skill in an art by experience, study, or teaching. And what I think is really interesting about this definition is that teaching, that portion that I actually use in the experiments and learning that I use in the lab every day, that is third in this list. The first two are study and experience, which really are much more individually motivated than the teaching portion. So uh, just to make sure, I pulled out my 1971 edition as well and confirmed the order remains unchanged. All right, so that um, definition makes me think a little about, about this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, where he says, man thinking, him nature solicits with all her placid, all her monetary pictures, him the past instructs, him the future invites, is not indeed every man a student, and do not all things exist for the student's behoof. Now, we acquire knowledge not simply by formal teaching, but from everything around us, as this um, passage indicates. And that mode of acquiring is tightly interdigitated with the human mode of curiosity. Perhaps what I should really be studying as the more quintessential form of a human's capacity to learn is curiosity. Now, but here we move from one fundamental question to another. So one fundamental question is what is learning, and we move to a second fundamental question, which is what is curiosity? Is this really any simpler or just as difficult? 
Um, when I pronounce the term, several images may come to your mind. Perhaps when I pronounce the term curiosity, you think of the game, Trivial Pursuit, um, and then you may fall quickly into um, the terrible trivium from Phantom Tollbooth. Or perhaps when you think of uh, the term curiosity, you think of a two-year-old asking that unending string of questions that just keeps going and going and going and going. Or perhaps you think of the beautiful sight of hands raised in a classroom. Now, perhaps curiosity is the love of trivia, and perhaps curiosity is the asking of questions. But I think all of us, when we think about the individuals in our lives, can think about very curious individuals who really don't like trivia and really do not care to play trivial pursuit. We can also think about very curious children or very curious adults that don't verbalize many questions, perhaps because they're shy or quiet or otherwise rather thoughtful. So is it true that these com common notions of curiosity really capture what the idea is? Now perhaps when I pronounce the term curiosity, your mind went to this wonderful piece from Norman Rockwell, which paints a quite amusing picture, I think, of the faces of curiosity in social information. If you study all of them, it's <laughs> Or perhaps your mind goes back another century, um, to Australian artist Jane Sutherland's picturesque piece called Little Gossips, which paints a very different picture of curiosity for social information. Or perhaps your mind went back another hundred years to around 1750 um, to this British Museum's tittle-tattle, or the several branches of gossiping which offers a satire on women of the time, childbed, church, the market, public baths, the conduit, um, washing clothes in the river, the alehouse, the bakehouse. These are all shown as opportunities for women to exchange gossip. Now, our um, feminist affront aside, this is a, an interesting depiction of the notions of curiosity of the time. Now, this quandary of how to actually define curiosity and its places and its actions is not a challenge that we, as humans in the 21st century, face newly. This is something that many individuals over the course of time have faced. Um, Augustine, for example, suggests that curiosity is a lust to experience and find out. Aquinas suggests that curiosity is the desire to know. From Descartes, we have the, that curiosity is a desire to understand. And from John Locke, curiosity is an appetite after knowledge. William James, in 1899, curiosity is the impulse towards better cognition. John Dewey, in 1933, curiosity is an interest in problems provoked by the observation of things and the accumulation of material. Voss, in 1983, curiosity is a motivational prerequisite of exploratory behavior. Lowenstein, in 1994, curiosity is a feeling of deprivation produced by information gaps. And Nicole Kidd, in 2015, curiosity is a drive state for information. Now, all of these different definitions are all well and good, but number one, they are quite abstract. And number two, they differ from one another in rather meaningful ways. And from these differences, we can deduce that actually it's quite difficult to define what curiosity really means. But I want to suggest that perhaps there is an alternative approach to coming up with these simple, um, well, simple, maybe parsimonious um, descriptions of curiosity that could shed greater light on the question of what curiosity is. So to answer that question, 
we've been collaborating with um, Professor Perry Zern. So he's a philosopher at American University uh, outside of Washington, D.C. And what he did recently is to perform a historical, philosophical examination of the word curiosity. Now what this means is that he goes through um, using words for curiosity from Greek, from Latin, from French, from German, and from English, and he traces the, that, the common notion of curiosity through uh, the usage of these specific terms, um, watching how the usage changes and watching how the meaning can potentially change, either over one historical period or over several historical periods. In this particular case, he went back two millennia and tried to follow it all the way through. Now from these data, he built a taxonomy of curiosity based on what he calls kinesthetic signatures, which means sort of the actions or the movements of curiosity. And he refers to them as the busybody, the hunter, and the dancer. And we'll walk through each of them in turn. So the first style, the busybody. From Plutarch, a good example of this style, um, is from his On Curiosity, where he says, and the busybody shunning the country as something stale and uninteresting and undramatic, pushes into the bazaar and the marketplace and the harbors, asking, is there any news? This is the clear picture of the busybody in the center of the town, right? And then from much later, from Martin Heidegger, in his Being and Time, he suggests that curiosity is, can be well characterized by the not staying with what is needed, or distraction by new possibilities, or never dwelling anywhere. Now we can contrast that style of the busybody with the second style of the hunter. So here, again from Plutarch and again from his On Curiosity, we have if, the notion that if you have to be curious, don't turn aside and follow every sense, but keep your sense of smell pure and untainted for its proper task. From Friedrich Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil in 1886, the man of curiosity is described as wishing he had a few hundred helpers and good, well-trained hounds that he could drive into the history of the human soul to round up his game. A very clear vision of the hunter. And from Jacques Derrida in 1997, in The Animal That Therefore I Am, to be curious is to track, to sniff, to trail, and to follow for some of the reasons for the sole confident usage of words. So clearly, the hunter is curious, but curious in a very, very different way than the busybody is. Now the third style, the dancer, again from Nietzsche in his Gay Science in 1882, describing thinkers of the future. And that's actually what we're all here to be thinking about, right? Thinkers of the future. So here's his opinion of thinkers of the future. We do not belong to those who have ideas only among books when stimulated by books. It is our habit to think outdoors, walking, leaping, climbing, dancing, preferably on lonely mountains or near the sea where even the trails become thoughtful. Our first questions about the value of a book, of a human being, or a musical composition are, can they walk? Even more, can they dance? This is much more about a, a large movements um, as we uh, search for information. And from Michel Foucault in The Masked Philosopher, I can't help but dream about a kind of criticism that would try not to judge but to bring an avoir, a book, a sentence, an idea to life. It would light fires, watch the grass grow, listen to the wind, and catch the sea foam in the breeze and scatter it. 
It would multiply not judgments, but signs of existence. It would summon them, drag them from their sleep. Perhaps it would invent them sometimes, all the better. I'd like a criticism of scintillating leaps of the imagination. I dream of a new age of curiosity. Now, when I think of these three different styles of curiosity that philosopher Perry Zern um, describes, what strikes me most as fundamentally a scientist is that I think they all differ in what they actually do with that information, and specifically what kind of connections are made between pieces of information. So the busybody obviously gathers discrete units of information and kind of puts them in a bag for later, a little bit like this coin purse, right? None of the pieces of information at the uh, town market necessarily need to be linked to one another. They don't need to be related to one another. Like, this person just wants the independent units. This is a little bit more like the trigger. The hunter um, gathers those same discrete bits of information, but then densely connects them in an orderly way because they're tracking. They're linking idea and concept to the next idea and concept, linking them together in a concerted path toward something. Right? So they must link them, a little bit like these coins are linked in the necklace. And then third, the dancer gathers these discrete bits of information and then connects them in dense clumps separated by these large leaps. And so we have a very different architecture similar to that um, illustrated in this Tibetan coin sculpture. So perhaps, I think what this makes me think is that perhaps curiosity is not necessarily what we are curious about, so maybe it's not about trivia necessarily. And perhaps curiosity is not what physical actions we take. So maybe it's not the asking of questions or the raising of hands. But perhaps curiosity is how we build knowledge from the concepts and their relations with one another. And here I'm showing just a simple depiction of concepts as these little dots and then relations between those concepts as these little lines. And so perhaps the busybody builds disconnected knowledge, the hunter builds orderly targeted knowledge, and the dancer complements a local order with these long-range leaps into new conceptual spaces. Now that idea that perhaps curiosity um, is related to the notion of knowledge as a network begs the question of, is knowledge actually a network? Because if it, if it isn't, then this notion of curiosity really makes no sense at all. And actually, the notion that knowledge is a network is something has, that has been alluded to by several great minds in both the sciences and the humanities over the last several decades. And I particularly like these two passages. The first is from Henri Poitiers, so from the science side, who's a mathematician and physicist. Um, in 1905, in his Science and Hypothesis, he says that aim of science is not things themselves, as the dogmatists in their simplicity imagine, but the relations among things. Outside these relations, there is no reality knowable. And then John Dewey, in his 1916 Democracy and Education, really hits it on the head when he says, knowledge is a perception of those connections of an object which determine its applicability in a given situation. Thus, we get at a new event indirectly, instead of immediately, by invention, ingenuity, resourcefulness. And ideally, perfect knowledge would represent such a network of interconnections that any past experience would offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problems presented in a new experience. So then perhaps, curiosity can be usefully defined as knowledge network building. This notion is also actually alluded to in Dewey's work, 
um, the same uh, democracy and education where he says curiosity is not an accidental isolated possession. It is a necessary consequence of the fact that an experience is a moving, changing thing involving all kinds of connections with other things. Curiosity is but the tendency to make these conditions perceptible. So now we have arrived at this general notion of curiosity as knowledge network building. And it's been directly informed by historical philosophical investigation across multiple <coughs> millennia, across cultures, languages, and timescales. And now what I want to do as a scientist is to test it with the tools of modern science to say, is this characterization that we've observed, or that I should say Professor Perry Zern has observed from primary literature over the past two millennia, is that something that we can quantify, that we can measure, that we can probe scientifically in the minds of today? So let us posit that as humans, as we move from book to book, or as scientists, as we move from paper to paper, or as citizens, as we move from web page to web page, we are building <coughs> knowledge networks. What sorts of networks do we build? What do they look like? What is their architecture? Um, do we have different preferences in how we build these networks? Do each of us have slightly different preferences? These questions amount to asking how we are curious and whether we are curious differently from one another. Now the work that I'll describe over the next few minutes was actually led by Dr. David Leiden-Staley, who's a scientist and psychologist um, in my laboratory, and he actually was born in Galway, um, and he spent his, he's a very proud Irishman. He went to Trinity for his undergraduate degree and is now over um, at the University of Pennsylvania, so I'm particularly excited to be able to present his work to you here as his home community. All right, so David began this study by inviting 159 human participants to browse Wikipedia for 20 minutes a day for 21 days. So each of the participants signed a consent form that allowed us to download software onto their computer that would track which Wikipedia pages they um, were reading over that 20 minute period and in what order. Um, no other information was tracked from any of their computers. So this was just for that particular um, session each day. So across the entire study, 18,654 pages were visited. So it's a really <coughs> incredibly rich data set um, of human information searching. Uh, each participant searched for about five hours over the course of those 21 days. And from that data, we built networks, so for each individual. Every Wikipedia <coughs> page is a node inside of a network. And then two Wikipedia pages are linked together by similarity in their content. And we used some tools from natural language processing that allows us to assess similar, similarity in content between two Wikipedia pages. <coughs> so then what we can do is that we can try to understand whether a single human is walking among concepts that are very related to each other or walking among concepts that are very not related to one another. Um, and what you see here on the left-hand side of this colored bar graph over here is someone who has um, relatively low similarity between the pages that they uh, traversed among. So they're actually jumping very far between pages, conceptually. Whereas on the very right-hand side, you can see someone that has higher levels of similarity, so more of the light blue here. And that means that they are walking among pages that are very similar in context. 
compared to the other person. And so these are just three different individuals to show you that you can get very different um, characteristic browsing patterns from people in the study. Okay, so now we are ready to assess the network structure of each individual and their Wikipedia browsing patterns. Um, well, the way that we do that is that we use tools from network science, which is a rather new and emerging scientific discipline that studies the architecture, dynamics, design, and control of complex interconnected systems. What's really nice about it is that it provides a toolbox that includes analytical pipelines, but also statistical metrics that help us to quantify um, very particular types of patterns. So the two uh, schematics that I'm showing you here are illustrations of types of statistics that you can quantify from a network architecture. So on the right-hand side, you see uh, the notion of clustering, which is basically a reflection of the likelihood that the neighbors of a single node are connected to one another. If the neighbors of a node are connected to each other, then actually the three form a triangle together. So the clustering coefficient actually reflects sort of the proportion of triangles inside of the network. So a network that has a very high proportion of triangles is one that very densely um, uh, traverses the structure. And people move from one concept to another related concept to another one that triangulates between them. Okay? Now on the left-hand side, you see the notion of path length. So a path length uh, quantifies how many edges or how many uh, of these links need to be traversed in order to get from one part of the network to another part of the network. If that number is very low, it means that most of the nodes are connected to one another. It's a very dense packing. And if that number is very long, it's more like a string. So the longest path length that you would find is where you have one node here that connects to another and another this way all the way out to the wall. So you would have very many number of uh, hops to go through in order to get from one side to another, okay? So high path length is this more stringy notion. Um, low path length is this dense, more circular notion. Okay, so now we can go into the data that uh, we have from these individuals and we can ask specifically, how do curious humans in action build knowledge networks? Now there are three very common types of, of networks that people often study in the complex systems literature, and they're shown over here on the left-hand side. Um, so a regular lattice is one that is very heavily ordered. A random graph is exactly what it sounds like. The edges are placed at random, and then a small world structure is in between. Now small worldness, I don't know, have, has, have other people heard of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon? A few of you, okay. So the notion there, is, and, and other people may have even heard of the small world effect itself, which is basically that you can, for particular kinds of network architectures, you can get from any one person to any other person fairly quickly in very few hops. That means that there's a very short path length in that system. So that's the technical um, uh, description behind there. So the small world structure here, what you see is that you have lots of local um, clustering, but you have a few longer distance connections that allow you to, to, to traverse not just from one node to its neighbors, but, but from one node to something farther away along the circle. Now, what we find is that 
um, human participants, on average, tend to create very small world networks through their Wikipedia browsing patterns. And that's illustrated here on the bottom left, where you have a small world propensity. Here's all of the data from the 149 individuals. And what you can see is that these values pass the threshold of point, um, 0 0.50, which indicates that they are very strongly small world. Now, intuitively, what does that mean? Intuitively, what that suggests is that humans are exploiting information in neighboring concepts while also ensuring that the chosen concept space is efficiently traversed, in some way possibly optimally navigating it, the information content space around them. So it's this trade-off between going among common concepts and then taking some uh, longer distance steps. All right, so now that we understand a little bit about the networks that humans build, we can specifically search for the types of curiosity that Perizon proposes in his historical philosophical taxonomy. So using these ecologically valid Wikipedia experiments, we can ask um, which sorts of networks would a hunter build and which sorts of networks would a busybody build. Now, just to remind you, the hunter wishes that they had a few hundred helpers and good, well-trained hounds that they could drive into the history of a human soul to round up their game in a targeted search for information. So we could suggest, perhaps, that that type of search would create a different sort of network than the busybody, who will frisk about and rove about at random um, wherever they please. So specifically in the parlance of the two statistics that I described to you just now, we would hypothesize that a hunter is going to create networks that have relatively high clustering and relatively short path length. And conversely, we would hypothesize that a busybody would create a network structure that has relatively low clustering and high path length. So these translations allow us to basically operationalize the kinesthetic signatures of curiosity in the parlance of this emerging discipline of network science. Now to link this a little bit more strongly to the notion of curiosity, we also ask the question of, is there a particular personality trait that we would link to this type of search? And we specifically thought of deprivation sensitivity, um, so deprivation sensitivity, someone who's high in deprivation sensitivity, is someone who has a drive to eliminate the unknown as they encounter new information and recognize gaps in their knowledge. So therefore, individuals with very high deprivation sensitivity would be the hunters with high clustering coefficients. And individuals with low deprivation sensitivity are going to be the busybodies with relatively low clustering. All right, so here are our hypotheses. And we're going to go into the, I am a scientist after all. We're going to go into the data and we're going to ask, are those hypotheses borne out by the data? So here is on the, um, your left-hand side, what you see is the average clustering coefficient. Every data point here is a person in a Wikipedia study. And here you have the deprivation sensitivity of each individual. And so what you see is a positive relationship here which means those who are high in deprivation sensitivity, so the hunters, are ones that have high clustering coefficient. And individuals who are low in deprivation sensitivity, so more of the busybodies, have low clustering coefficient, consistent with the hypothesis. And on the right-hand side, you see related data, but now for the path length that I told you about. So here is the path length on the y-axis, 
and then on the x-axis is deprivation sensitivity, you see a negative correlation between these two, indicating that individuals with high deprivation sensitivity are the hunters with relatively low path length, and then those who are low in deprivation sensitivity have high path length, so reflective of the busy body. Okay, so that's what the data said. Um, but kind of in words, what we find is that this individual, these individual differences in deprivation sensitivity lead to the creation of knowledge networks with very distinct architectures. So more simply, um, when we seek information, all of us seek it differently. And because we seek it differently, we create different networks of knowledge. I think that that's really exciting, um, but I think it leaves open many, many important questions. So one particularly important question I have is, what happens when we go to learn a new field of study? And that network, the network of that new field of study, has a very different architecture than the one that we, uh, we prefer. So for example, what if I am a busybody, um, and then I want to go learn something like um, linear algebra, which I teach at Penn, where all of the ideas are very, very tightly linked to all of the other ideas. Maybe I would find it difficult to learn that particular, that particular field, because it's not in the structure that I prefer to learn. It's a hypothesis. It's an open question. Um, second, do humans preferentially create networks that we understand? Maybe the networks of knowledge, maybe knowledge itself, has an architecture that is the way it is because that's the kind of architecture that we understand. So it's not a perfect busybody architecture, it's probably also not a perfect hunter architecture. It's somewhere in between. And then that makes me ask, what about artificially made networks or artificially made information, artificially made knowledge? What kind of architectures do they have? Do they match with the human expectations or do they just disobey human expectations. Why? How? Um, and then does knowledge evolve over time to more closely match human building preferences or vice versa? Maybe perhaps even more importantly, what happens in the mind when we learn networks? What is going on in the underlying neural circuitry? And this reminds me of this passage from Aristotle's Metaphysics where he says, Mind thinks itself because it shares the nature of the object of thought, for it becomes an object of thought in coming into contact with and thinking about its objects, so that mind and object of thought are the same. So we experience this networked world, right? And then we build networks of knowledge derived from those experiences. And we do that using a network of physical wires along which information, electrical signals can pass, allowing for this efficient processing of information. Are each of these networks in these three different layers, are they mirrors of one another in some important way that allows for us to make these representations and these matches from world to mind? I think as we look to the future and consider how we can begin to answer these types of questions, I also want to look back at this particular study as an example of a fruitful approach. So we began with some hard questions. What is learning? What is curiosity? We were dissatisfied with existing definitions that were not embodied in the human form. We therefore turned to history and philosophy, to ancient and modern texts, 
to develop a more holistic approach to the study of curiosity. We talked about the work of philosopher Perry Zern uncovering these main styles of curiosity and noted their differences in connectivity, which led us to postulate that curiosity can be fruitfully defined as knowledge network building. We then developed a scientific experiment, more ecologically valid scientific experiment than the ones we usually run in my lab, um, based on Wikipedia browsing, and then capitalized on recent advances in natural language processing and applied mathematics and network science to analyze that data and test the postulate. The work is basically what I hope comes across as a living reflection of my claim that science of the mind, a science of the mind that we really want, must account for the minds of today and those of yesteryear. And in fact, I think that by solely studying the brains and the societies and the cultures of today, we often fall victim of the ineffectuality of temporal primacy. So here is the human brain you see on your right-hand side, um, which exists today in all of its multicolored glory across all of us. However, by studying just this one part of space, we can find ourselves to an extremely narrow window into the workings of the human mind. If we can go outside of today, we are offered a rich window um, into the human mind that is located in literary work and in philosophical expositions across many different time periods. And all of that can now be quantified with emerging tools from natural language processing, from applied mathematics, from network science. And I think that this added dimension of going back in time can allow us to supersede the constraints of temporal primacy and provide us with a much richer description of human thought. I really think that this discrepancy in, for my field and the focus of the brain of today, while ignoring the mind of yesterday, calls for a concerted breakdown in the current barriers between the sciences and the humanities. And specifically, I think that we need a concerted commitment to enhance precision in our description of human thought that's not just about today. Um, enhance precision in the tasks that we construct to probe human thought. It's not just about what we observe today. And then also we need to inform our study of the brain with a quantitative study of historic use of natural language and historic topics of philosophical discourse. So in the words of a well-known Dubliner, I have the words already. What I am seeking is the perfect order of words in the sentence. You can see for yourself how many different ways they might be arranged. And I think that by understanding how the words are arranged and the meanings that they reflect in historic literary work and philosophical exposition, we can really fundamentally reshape the types of questions that I, as a neuroscientist, ask about the mind and its underlying neural circuits in a really profoundly new way and expand our understanding and our, our ability to understand this quintessential complex system, which is human thought. With that, I'd like to acknowledge the team that was important in helping me think through a lot of the work that we've described here, and also these two main collaborators, Professor Perry Zern, who's in the Department of Philosophy at American University, and Dr. David Lydon Stanley, who led the Wikipedia study that I described to you. Um, with that, I'd love to thank you for listening, and I guess we can move into the question period. Thank you.